Revelation chapter 2. If you're new to Bible study, do not start your Bible study in Revelation, okay? Um, it's, it's a little dangerous for you. It gets kind of weird, and there's dragons and stuff, and so uh, <clears throat> we'll just we'll stick in Acts. But we're in the fourth week of a four-week series where we're studying the church at Ephesus, this incredible church. It was planted in Acts, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 19. Uh, the Apostle Paul goes there. Um, Twelve religious guys meet Jesus. That's pretty cool. Paul's doing these amazing miracles all throughout uh, Ephesus. He's, um, he's healing people, and he's preaching and teaching the gospel. And the Bible even says that the, the miracles that Paul is doing in Ephesus are unique. They're, they're not even, they don't happen in other places. Like, you know, he's at the tailgate. He's grilling a bubble burger. He goes into the game, takes off his apron. The apron lands on somebody and heals him. So he's, he's healing people by accident. You know what I mean? It's one thing to have the gift of healing and heal people on purpose. Um, Paul is so saturated in the Spirit of God that he's healing people and didn't even mean to, like with Kleenexes and stuff. And so... Word gets out about Paul and all that God is doing through him at the church of Ephesus. And these guys named the sons of Sceva, um, these seven uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists, they try to get on with what's going on. They, they won't kind of get on the Jesus train, but they don't know Jesus. And so they go out and they try to cast out a demon by using Jesus' name, but they don't know him. And if you'll remember back from week one, then the, the possessed man, the demon-possessed man, jumps on the seven sons of Sceva and masters them and beats them naked and wounded, right? Beats their pants off of them. That's how bad this was. The Bible says that they fled naked and wounded. There's wounded, and then there's like an emotional wound that Oprah can't take away. You know what I'm saying? That's what happens. And so then... Then fear falls upon all of, of the city of Ephesus and the church begins to explode. And the Bible talks about the, the kind of environments that, that the early church in Ephesus put themselves into. They extolled the name of Jesus. They came together in fellowship. We'll talk about all those in a little while. And then the second week, we talked about the incredible growth of this church at Ephesus, that there was a movement that impacted and began to transform the socioeconomic construct of the entire city of Ephesus. And this was a major metropolitan city. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people lived in this port city. And the entire place was turned upside down because the Christians didn't just show up to church on Sunday, but all throughout the week they actually acted like it and and they walked out what they believed. And so they quit buying the idols to the temple of Artemis and it began to shut down the idol uh, factory, the idol idol industry there in that city. And the whole place... just erupted. The Bible says the whole thing was brought into confusion. And then on the third week, we looked at the book of Ephesians, that Paul, the apostle Paul, the church planter there, he wrote to the church at Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. And what he talked about the whole time was the gospel, that the whole book of Ephesians is about the gospel. The first three chapters describe the gospel. The last three chapters describe the implications of the gospel. And we really hung out in chapter 2 and and just what does it look like to be saturated in the gospel. And as we were studying this, we hosted our very own revival. And we were we got together to be saturated in the word of God, the love of God, and the truth of God. And God showed up in a mighty, mighty way. And I want to thank every one of you that were here uh, for saturated one of the five nights or all of the five nights. Um, Over 8,300 people showed up for all the five nights. And it was just to do one thing, and it was to lift high the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. It was awesome. Awesome. I disciple a group of guys on Thursday morning, and one of the guys, he's uh, late 20s, early 30s, he, he says to me, he says, I experienced the presence of Jesus in a super intense, intimate, and emotional way that I haven't experienced since, since I first met him when I was a teenager. And so that's a, that's a part of what that revival was about. 
to be saturated, to experience the manifest presence of God. And now, this week, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 to talk about, um, really, you know, we studied the, the planting of the church of Ephesus, the incredible rise of the church at Ephesus, the pinnacle, which would be like Ephesians, you know, when, when they were receiving that letter. And then we're going to see the demise of the church at Ephesus. Because here's the thing about being saturated. If you saturate a sponge, and then you just leave the sponge to be saturated, what happens? It turns sour, and it gets nasty. The Christian that only has input... And it's not doing anything about it. It'll just get soured and nasty. So what we're going to ask is that God now begins to just squeeze us and to squeeze out that gospel saturation so that it has impact on those of us around us. Okay, and so here we are in Revelation chapter 2. What we're going to see now is a letter from Jesus to this church at Ephesus. And um, it's kind of at the end of their church life. And if you've got a, a Cadillac edition of the Bible, like I do, you know, not the ones we give to you for free because we can't afford red letter, but you'll notice that this is a letter from the resurrected Christ to this church at Ephesus. This is kind of a big deal. So here's what Jesus wants the church at Ephesus to know. Now, the church was planted in, in somewhere between 52 and 54 AD when Paul was in Ephesus on his missionary journey, and they're going to receive this letter in about 90 to 94 AD, okay? So it's about 40 years later, and here's what he says. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, this is kind of neat. Every church, according to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, every church gets an angel. Now, that word angel in Greek can also be messenger, so it's a little bit of a play on words. A little bit of it may be Jesus saying, okay, to the, like the teaching pastor of your church, here's some things you need to look at, and that's true. But also, there's a supernatural unseen realm. And so, the Bible makes it look like there, every church gets an angel. And do you know that our angel, the angel of the church of 1122, is up for his annual review, right? He's only been at work for a year, and we're just rooting that he has a good review this year. And I just want to point out, this is just conjecture, you, you can't find a Bible verse here. I'm hoping and praying and believing that our angel, the angel of the church of 1122, looks more like a, a UFC athlete and less like a little skinny chicken or underwear with wings, okay? I believe he's got tats, he carries a big sword, and he does work. Amen? Amen. All right, so I'm hoping his review goes well. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a big fancy title for Jesus. So Jesus is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. Number two, verse two. I know your works. Now, let's just be honest. That should make you a little nervous. If you get a letter from Jesus and it starts out with, I know what you've been doing. Doesn't that make you nervous? It reminds me of when my dad would come in my room when I was a teenager and he'd go, son, is there something I need to know about? And I would think, there's really like four things you need to know about. But I'm going to let you go first because if I don't know which one of the four you need to know about. And why should we talk about number three and four if you really only know about one or two? And so I knew a butt whooping was coming, but I didn't just want to divulge that one, you know, give it away, let him do some work too. So Jesus basically starts out with, I know what you've been doing. And so I would be a little nervous if Jesus said that to you. But he says, I know your works. And it starts out really great. He says, I know, your, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. In other words, uh, church at Ephesus, you're doing a great job. You work hard. You are toiling for the kingdom. You're doing some great things. If we put it into our context, it would be, hey, look, I drove by your parking lot the other day, and the place is packed. 
It was awesome. And not just that, your serve staff is full. You got like a thousand people on your serve staff. That's awesome. You got parking attendants. You got people that work the front doors. You got people that hold the front doors, people to hand you a bulletin. You get greeted 19 times before you get into your seat. If you get here late, like everybody does, we'll help you find a seat. That's pretty good. There's people in the nursery to rock the babies. And we don't just rock the babies. We pray over them and we, we sing songs over them. And there's, there's people to train the children and people to pour into the lives of the teenagers. And, and you're working hard and you got mission trips all over the world and you're partnering with, with ministries all over the city to feed the poor and protect the unborn. just all kinds of things, man. Man, Ephesus, you are working hard. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Way to go. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So not only are you a hard-working church, and you've got programs for everybody, way to go, but not only that, but you're doctrinally sound. You actually teach the Bible. Church at Ephesus, you're not doing like this... um, kind of Christian version of the American dream where the pastor stands up and says things like, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. That is a lie. If you're six foot four and 280 pounds, you ain't going to be a jockey, okay? You might be the horse, but God didn't make you to be the jockey. So I don't care how much you just believe. It ain't going to happen. And so what you guys do, church at Ephesus, you actually read the Bible and apply it and, and you got sound Bible classes, I mean, you got new beginning classes and new believer classes and old believer classes and grow up in your faith classes and you teach the Bible and you got disciple groups going on. And at this church, when Pastor Timothy stood up and said, all right, church at Ephesus, we need you to get connected. After the service, go to the Connect Center and sign up for a disciple group. Everybody went. Now, at our church, about 10% of people did. But, but at their church, everybody went and they signed up for a group. And they so not only are they working hard, but they also, they don't bear with those who are evil. They've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And they found them to be false. So not only do they work hard, and they got programs for everybody, and, and the volunteerism is awesome. Plus, in Bible trivia, they kick all the other churches' butt. I mean, they got it. They read the Bible and memorize the prophets and all that kind of stuff. And then verse 3, And I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. So not only this, you guys are really enjoying it. You're not just grinning and bearing it, but this environment at your church that you've created, you really like it. You show up and say, hey, where can I help and where can I serve and what can I do and, and let's believe the right things. I mean, you actually enjoy the church at Ephesus and what's going on here and you have not grown weary. Like, like you're, not just, you're not just going to church because you think you have to, but you actually love this, this environment that you've created of Good works and strong belief. And so, if you don't read pad, don't read ahead, don't read verse 4, it ruins the whole thing, okay? But if you just get these first three verses, you think, what a great church. I mean, this is the kind of church I'd want to attend. This is the kind of church I want to pastor, you would think. I know y'all don't think about this stuff, because you got lives. I just think about church stuff all the time. I know you wake up and you think about the Dow Jones or whatever you do, but I think about church. And, and every like church growth book would say, these are the things you need for a great church. You got to have strong volunteerism. You got to have lots of Bible study. You got to have lots of programs for all the people. I mean, those things are really, really important. And in fact, most churches measure how well church is going by the ABCs, by the attendance, buildings, and cash. How's that going? And so... The initial report on Ephesus is your attendance is great. Parking lot's full. Way to go. 
And buildings, man, everything's big and everybody fits and nice and neat. You know, you're probably going to go to a multi-service deal there. Great job, Church at Ephesus. And cash, people are generous and they're giving. And, you know, you can pay all the staff and do all the programs that you want to do. So, again, you think, man, what? this is great. What's the problem? Verse 4. But I have this against you. There's always a but, isn't it? You ever notice when people really start out, hey, can we talk? They never mean, can we talk? They mean, I'm going to talk. I need you to listen to me talk to you for a second. And if it, if, if it starts out with, I know what you've been doing, and it all starts good, you know the but's going to be enormous. So he says, but I have this against you. Now, I just have this one thing. Jesus says, I just have this one thing. This one problem, church. Now, and you would think, well, how bad, how bad can it be? I mean, again, everybody's serving, everybody's working, you believe well. How bad can it be? And here it goes. <clears throat> but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. So church at Ephesus. Everything looks great from the outside. I mean the church looks like it is really rocking and rolling from the outside. I mean the stained glass is beautiful. And the parking lot's full. And there's butts in the seats. And there's hands in the air. And there's cash in the boxes. And some of the people are singing the songs with their eyes closed because they're extra spiritual and the band sounds awesome. And everybody's talking about it. And you got bumper stickers in your church all over your city. I mean, it looks great. There's just one problem. You don't love me anymore. Now, you had it at first. But you've abandoned the love that you had at first. And so, if, is it, essentially, church at Ephesus, you're just like the sons of Sceva. Remember those bad boys that got their butts kicked early on because they were doing things, they were doing things with Jesus' name on it, but they didn't actually know Jesus? That's what your church has turned into. It went from a passionate love of Jesus, that first love of Jesus, where things were messy, but, but God was moving. And now it's nice and neat and orderly, and you've abandoned it. And now, and now it's just, it's just everything's done like with religious obligation instead of a passionate desire to love Jesus. And so it might only be one thing. From the outside, everything may look great. And Jesus say, I've only got one thing against you. And it's the death blow of the church of Ephesus. They do not survive the one problem that they have. Folks, this is a warning for our church. It's a warning for our church. Verse 5, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, I mean, I can just hear Jesus pleading with the church at Ephesus. Don't you remember what it was like at one point? Don't you remember from where you have fallen? Don't you remember in Acts chapter 19 where, where God was moving so powerfully in your church that it changed an entire city of Ephesus? I mean, that was a big deal. That was a major port city. And because you love Jesus so much and you acted like it, it began to change the entire city. People got together and talked about it. And now somehow it's just drifted to, to religious obligation. Like what happened? Don't you remember? I mean, you guys were here impacting the kingdom. Or don't you remember Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 and 21? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church. Don't you remember when the apostle Paul sent you that letter? That the only limiting factor at the church of Ephesus was your imagination? That you would pray, dear God, transform our city. And God was thinking, I'm going to do way more than that. I'm going to reach all of Asia through your church. Folks, 
part of the reason I wanted to study the church at Ephesus is because I wanted us, the church of 1122, to see this as a warning. I mean, do you have any idea how God's timing on this works? I know you don't because you don't come hunting with me on Monday to know what I'm preaching on. But about, I don't know, eight months, a year ago, I knew we're doing the book of Acts. And as I'm working through it, this is just where we got to. Acts 19, I wanted to look at the church at Ephesus. And, and, and it, wasn't, it was a couple months ago when I realized, oh, we're going to be talking about this the week after revival. Oh, that's good timing. You know what else happened this month? Just a couple weeks ago? The two largest um, like Christian magazines came out. And I know some of you are like, what, they have Christian magazines? Look, if they've got cat magazines, they've got magazines for everything, okay? There's magazines on walking. Really? And so, I mean, with pictures. Like, I don't understand. Anyway, so <laughs> this month, two of the large, I'm not even going to tell you what the magazines are because I don't want you to go read the articles, but these two magazines come out with articles about the church of 1122. And so... Uh, you know, when you've been in ministry for 20 years, you know some people. And so I'm getting emails and texts and phone calls from friends in ministry all over the country going, hey, we just read about your church, man. That is awesome. Okay, we transformed a Walmart. Woohoo! This church, the church at Ephesus makes our church look JV. The entire city of Ephesus was transformed by what God was doing there. And they abandoned their first love and then it does not survive. This is a warning for our church. It is a warning. Do not ignore this. Look, we could, take, uh, we could take thousands of people on mission trips, and we could have all kinds of programs, and we could have the coolest new-gen space and the coolest new new-gen space in the restore, and we could buy all four city blocks here and build six flags over Jesus and have a thousand bands and win Dove Awards and all that stuff. And if we don't love Jesus, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter at all. Amen? It just doesn't. And so he says, repent and do what you did at first. I mean, is, is the church at Ephesus just damned? No, Jesus tells them, repent and do what you did at first. Repent and do what you did at first. You see, at first, you love me, so what do you do? You got to get back to loving me first. Some of you have experienced this in your own home. Where from the curb, everything looks great. I mean, your house is immaculate. You never you thought you were going to get to live in something like that. You even literally have the white picket fence. And it looks great. And your kids look great. I mean, you know, one of them's in gifted and the other one's in all kind of athletic stuff. And you're, you and your spouse spend all your days driving them around, dropping them off at their 93 extracurricular activities because you live in the suburbs and that's what you have to do. Or other parents will look at you and be like, oh, your kid doesn't know how to ride horses? What? Oh, let me sign them up. Okay. And you get them in that. I, I mean, we're signed up for junk too. And you're doing all that. And, and, but then when you look across at your spouse, you think, huh, what a roommate. You do your part, I'll do my part, and I'll see you when the kids leave. And what's happened is on the outside, everything looks great. There's not a problem with the house. There's not a problem with the kids. Finances are all right. But you've abandoned your first love. And early on, you had it. You had it. I mean, early on, when you first met her, you were goofy in love. I mean, you did junk you never wanted to do. Like, see the notebook. You didn't want to see the notebook. But you went. 
You never ate so much ice cream in your life. Oh, yogurt again, seriously? All right, but you would be like, oh, it's my favorite, mochi. Never even heard of a flavor of this. It's, come on. There better not be a grown man in here on your own that goes to get yogurt. But you did. You're like, oh, that's my favorite kind. You're watching The Notebook, and you even, because of that, because you were goofy in love, you, were, you weren't going to tell him. I ain't telling nobody, but I kind of liked it. You know, that's where you were. And you stood in an altar, and you were hand-to-hand, and eyeball-to-eyeball with this girl, and you promised, you vowed, for better or worse, in sickness or health, rich or poor, till death do us part. And then now, you didn't, you abandoned your first love, though. The the hymn writer says it this way. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, the church at Ephesus didn't wake up. What do you want to do today? Let's abandon our first love. No. You just begin to drift away. You just begin to wander away. Same thing happens in your marriage. You just get busy doing stuff. Then one day you look across the bed at this. Wow. We've just kind of drifted into this. See, we are prone to wonder. We're like cattle. You know, cattle have never gotten together and said, okay, on three, make a run for it. Ready? Go. And then you've never been driving down the road and, poof, there's a cow. Okay, whoa, what was that? Never. They just eat a little grass here and, oh, look, more grass. They eat a little grass. And then they just wander away. That's what can tend to happen. It, it happened in your marriage and it happened in your relationship with Jesus because it's a relationship that has to be cultivated. Nobody's ever ignored their front yard in the yard of the month. It takes work to cultivate that kind of environment. Nobody's ever ignored their marriage into just lifelong intimacy. Nobody's ever ignored their relationship with the Lord into just walking deeply, abiding with Him. So what do you do? Well, Jesus tells you what to do. Repent. Repent. Repent just means change direction. So it's saying, church at Ephesus, you are heading away from God towards sin. What you need to do is turn your back to sin and start heading back towards God. If it's happening in your marriage, it's the same thing. You get that, right? If you're drifting away, you know what you need to do is you repent and do the work. You did it first. So if it's in your marriage, and I just want you to see your marriage as an illustration for your relationship with Jesus. So if you look across and, and the one that you used to be just goofy in love with is now just your roommate, well, repent and do the stuff you did at first. Remember, fellas, what you used to do? Some of you old boys are going to have to remember way back, okay? Remember? Get the get 57 Chevy fired up and you go pick her up. And remember that? You used to take her on dates. Remember? Think about it. What did you used to do? Oh, I used to go on dates. You used to take a shower. Remember you'd shower before? Put you some brood on or whatever you wore. <laughs> get you a shirt that didn't have a logo of any of your football team on it. You had a button down. And you go out to restaurants and you put your back towards sports center and you just got eyeball to eyeball with her and you just talk remember and i know you have it in you gentlemen i know you do you know why i know you do because you got her to marry you and look this ain't like hunting this ain't like you pursue and you track and you stalk and then when you bag it you've put it on the wall just to walk by and ignore the rest of your life okay that you pursue you continuously pursue and from my perspective look at around here Nine out of ten of you gentlemen, you outpunted your coverage, okay? So I know you got some game. And don't, I mean, I could just, you want me to just point out names? Let's 
by God's grace, all right? That you're there. And so what you do when you're rekindling that relationship with your wife is you remember and you do the stuff that you, you did at first. You pursue her, you chase after her, you, you go on dates, you put yourself in those environments that begin to stir your affections for her again. And just by the way, fellas, it's your responsibility. You better get on it, okay? You better get on it. There was a real high-pitched amen that only the other women could hear in here that just happened, all right? <laughs> because if not, we are, we're all, we're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts of blood. So just like you've got to do that in any relationship, it's why I take my wife out on dates. I, you know, just just get dressed up and go after her. Keep going after her. Keep dating her. Can I tell you one of my heroes in the faith? It's not John Wesley. He was a horrible husband. John Calvin, incredible theology. Not awesome at home. Martin Luther, same thing. We should read all those books. Very smart men. Some of the most influential men in the history of the world. One of my heroes in the faith is a guy that comes to 722 named Scott Putnell. He's been a Christian like a minute, all right? He don't know a whole lot. I mean, it takes him the whole service to find Acts, and we've been there for the year, okay? So I'm not saying he's going to be teaching our Bible classes tomorrow. But this past week, he celebrated 28 years of marriage. And I'm in a hunting club with him, and I've been on mission trips with him, and I spent some time with his family, and I've been married 13 and a half years, all right? See, I got married in 2000, so whatever year it is, that's how many years it's been. Uh Uh-huh. See what I did? And so in 13 and a half years, everybody my age has been married like me, everybody my age, when we see Scott and Tina Putnell, we look at Scott and go, that's what I want. I want that. I mean, he holds his wife's hand, arm around her, opens the door, he just... And when we ask him, hey, man, what do you do? What's the secret to 28 years of that kind of, that kind of marriage? I mean, what do you do? He goes, I just never stopped doing it. I just never stopped dating her. And he's a hero of the faith for me. And so the same thing's true with your relationship with Jesus. You see, some of you had it at first. You had it. You can remember back to times on that mission trip or at some point where you were just in, I mean, you just loved Jesus. You were in a prayer time and you, and you thought, man, if I just open my eyes real fast right now, I might see his face. That's how close he felt to you. And then now you're looking at your life and it's just kind of cold and stale. I, I, got a, I got a warning for you. You might be like the church at Ephesus and you may be abandoning your first love. Now, I know you don't wake up in the morning and go, hey, I'm going to abandon Jesus today. But you just begin to drift away. And so what do you do is you repent and you do the things you did at first. Now, here's the cool thing about the church of Ephesus. We could actually go back to Acts 19 and see, all right, well, what were the things that they did at first? What were the environments that they put themselves in to stir their affections for Jesus? And again, it's not, listen, if your relationship with your wife or Jesus has grown stale, you can't just go home and go, I gotta try, love him. It, it just doesn't work that way. But what you do is you put yourself in these environments that stir your affections for the Lord. And so look, in Acts chapter 19, verses 17 through 20, this was what we studied on week one of this series. Here's what they did. Here's what they did at first. It says, and fear fell upon them all. Now, so doctrine and theology are not bad. Yes, you do theology, and yes, you need right doctrine. Why? Because worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. 
And so if you want to respond rightly, you better see him rightly. So it started with sound theology, but here are the environments. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's one. Also, many of those who were now believers came together. That's two. Confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. That's three. And they counted the value of them and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's four. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's five. There were five environments that they put themselves in that stirred their affections for Jesus. And it was messy. And then 40 years later... Jesus says, you've abandoned me, so get back to what you did at first when you were in love with me. And so the first thing was that they worshiped Jesus. That's what saturated was all about. We just wanted people to be saturated in the manifest presence of God. That we would just get together and extol the name of Jesus, lift high the name of Jesus. And so a a big part of what, what you need to do is just engage. Do you know how blessed we are as a church to not have a rock star up here, but have a worship pastor that can help lead us and train us and teach us and what it means to lean into him. And so they extolled the name of Jesus. And then what did they do? Then they came together in fellowship. That they came together in fellowship. That they didn't just come and attend an event, but they put themselves with some other people that knew their name, that prayed for them, that pointed out blind spots in their life. They said, hey, as I, as I read the word and as I see the way you're living... It just doesn't match up in the direction that you're heading. It leads somewhere that you don't want to go. And so, and so in love, they would point them in the right direction and hold them accountable. And they would come together in fellowship. The way we do that is a disciple group. They would get in a disciple group. The great 20th century prophet and theologian and JV football coach, Coach Bull Lee, used to tell me all the time, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And I remember in the ninth grade going, Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, ain't going good. That's some of you. Some of you. Who in your life is encouraging you and spurring you on to not abandon your first love? If you're a middle school or a high school student and you're not signed up for the fall retreat, I just don't know what to tell you. I mean, you need to be there to be around some other students that say we're not going to abandon our first love. I mean, every adult in here would agree that every teenage generation is the hardest generation to grow up in. And so we're trying to provide you an an event, an opportunity, an environment where you can actually have some biblical fellowship. The Bible says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. The other thing they did is it says that they confessed and repented of their evil deeds and they divulged their practices. You see... Early on, the church at Ephesus was a mess. It was super messy. But if you look, by the time, by the time Jesus sends a letter in 90 AD, it had gotten really clean. Their doctrine was good, their programs were great, and things weren't messy anymore. But early on, it was, it was, there was this, this place of authenticity, this place of transparency, and that's when God was moving like crazy. Can I just tell you something, Church of 1122? You don't have to fake it here. 
You just don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend like you've got it all figured out. We know you don't have it all figured out. And we know that you don't have a lot of places where you can actually act like that. I know when you pick your kids up in the carpool line, you have to act like you got it all together because you're worried about what everybody thinks. I understand. I fake it in the carpool line too, okay? I know at the gym you have to fake it. Like, oh, I'm not eating crappy food. I'm, you know, I know. You got to fake it there. I know at your country club you got to fake it. I understand. I know when you go to the pool you got to fake it, right? You can't breathe in the whole time. Come on, here we go. I got to breathe out. All right. I know you got to fake it everywhere else. You don't have to fake it here. The fake you is doing just fine. Okay. You can fake it somewhere else, but you don't have to fake it here because God has a plan for the real you. So you can just come on in. I played golf on Friday. All right. I don't play very often because I'm horrible. And it, it costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time and I don't have a lot of time and money. But other than that, it's awesome. Right. But I love it. And there's a bunch of pastors, elders, and deacons playing together. So, whew. So we go out there. And I'm terrible. I'm terrible. And, uh, and if you play just a little bit like I do, and you get on that first tee, you ever been there and you're taking too long and you're thinking, oh, no, just hit the thing. Please just hit the ball. <laughs> and then as you're taking too long, the, the carts behind you start to stack up. And you just get that feeling how many have ever been there on the first tee and you just get that feeling? All right, praise. Thank you all for being honest here at church. And look, I'm not saying don't play golf. Play golf. Invite me, all right? I'll eat your $11 hamburger at your country club. I don't care. It's good. <clears throat> and you get that feeling like I've got to perform because people are watching. I don't want you to ever feel like that at this church. Ever, ever, ever. You can take that idea and you can flush it. So if you didn't bring your Bible and you don't even know where Acts is still, okay, no problem. And if you don't know where to drop your kids off and where to go and why is that guy raising his hand and who and what's with the author and kneeling, I, look, you can just flush all of that feeling of performance. You don't ever have to feel that way, all right? You can actually belong here before you even believe what we believe, that you could just come in just as you are and you don't have to fake it. And that's not even talking about the people that are just starting to come to church, if you've been here for a long time, you can be yourself too. You can actually just be honest because the cross, the cross is out at us all. We know that Jesus died on the cross because all of us are jacked up. And so on the tee, I'm going to hit three off the first. And the first two are going to go underwater, okay? And I'm the pastor, so it's okay. You get it? It's okay to not be okay. But now here's what you're going to walk into. Because we actually believe that Jesus loves us enough not to leave you where you are. And so if there's areas in your life and it's just leading to death, bondage, and destruction, then we're going to get in your way and go, whoa, 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 whoa. The path that you're on leads somewhere that you don't want to go. Okay? And so we're going we're gonna to lovingly encourage one another. But you can come just as you are, but we know that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you don't have to leave just as you were. And see, this is what they did early on, is that they, were, they would confess their sin and they would repent of evil practices. They also gave sacrificially. That the idols in their, I mean, we're not burning books, but the idols in their lives, they didn't just put them on a shelf and be like, oh, I kind of struggle with that, but I'm going to keep it close when I want it. No, they, they did whatever it took to kill the sin in their lives. Because sin is either killing you or you're killing it. Those are the options. And then they were rooted in the Word of God. They were rooted in the Word of God. They didn't just always get together and just kind of hang out and do nothing. 
encourage one another in their just silliness. They just were rooted in the Word of God. That's what they did. And so what Jesus tells them to do is to repent and do the works you did at first. He goes on to say, if not, like if you don't return to what you used to do, if you don't return to that first love, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, repent just means change direction. Jesus says, church at Ephesus, you started out so incredible. Remember? And if you don't change direction, your church is, is heading over the cliff. And so if you, don't, if you don't come back to your first love, it's not good. Verse 6, and yet this I have, and this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let me just warn you. If your church is identified solely by what it's against, it's over. It's over. And honestly, I don't even know what the Nicolaitans are. I think that's people that hate SpongeBob. All right, I think so. Because that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. All right, that's the problem with our kids who are watching sea cucumbers, man. What happened to just dogs and stuff? Anyway. But if you as an individual, if you as a denomination, as a church as a movement, are just known for what you're against, you're not a movement anymore. You've just taken a defensive posture and the end is near. You see, early on, they were known for loving Jesus. Now, they're known for what they are against. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's still some people that are meeting Jesus there. But then, silence. This is the last thing you hear from the church at Ephesus. It's like the black box on the airliner before it crashes. The last words we get on the church of Ephesus and then nothing. They do not repent. They do not return to their first love, which is Jesus. And then you get nothing. And it happened in 40 years. 40 years. Listen, God's doing amazing things at this church, right? Almost 1,000 people got saved here in this past year. Praise God. And we transformed to Walmart. Yippee. But at Ephesus, it was bigger. It was bigger. There were more magazine articles about them. More people were getting saved. They were a bigger impact on their community. And in 40 years, they're shutting the door. 40 years used to sound like a long time to me. It does not sound like a very long time to me anymore. In one generation, it went from the greatest church that they'd ever heard of to nothing, to dead. It is a warning for us, Church of 1122. Did you know that this year, in America, 7,000 churches will close their doors? Stacey Brown, our CFO, sent me uh, some pictures of some churches, some abandoned churches. And these aren't in Europe. These are in the United States of America. This first one is a picture of a church in Michigan. I want you to take a look at the inside of this church. I mean, this church at one day was thriving. Look at that. Look at that stage thriving. I mean, you know, to build something like that, I know y'all don't think about this, I think about it all the time, okay. To build something like that, I mean, that took sacrifice of people. There had to be people showing up and excited and willing to give, and they were were stoked about what the Lord had in store for them. And that's what it looks like today. Um, Here's another one in Pennsylvania. Look at this church. I mean, can you just look at, look at those archways, do you know what it costs to build one of those archways? See, I do. I know what it costs to make a Walmart into a church, and we ain't got any archways here. You know why? Because we can't afford them. Some of y'all, we couldn't even get the poles out of the way, so you send them how to pole. 
We only had enough money for one pole. There was a pole right here, ladies' accessories. We had to move it out of the way. So I didn't have to, like, you know, preach around the pole. So at one point, a team of leaders at this church, and look, we're going to get the benefit of the doubt. I am not being critical of architecture here, all right? So I'm going to assume that the leadership of this church got together and said, we want to build such a structure that when people walk in, it would be magnificent and it would lift people's eyes to the heavens and worship God Almighty. Praise God for cool architecture. And then at some point, I don't know who went first, but somebody abandoned their first love in that church and a whole bunch of people started going with them. And now, I mean, look, what are those cards all over the place? Those capital campaign cards or something, just all strong and nobody's there to worship Jesus. Look at this next one. This is a, a Methodist church in Gary, Indiana, this next picture. See, we got columns like they got, but... I mean, can't you imagine at one point, I mean, look how beautiful that sanctuary is. That at some point in Gary, Indiana, at this United Methodist Church, people got up and got their Bibles and got their kids ready. And they all went to church and they had their Bible in their arms and they were going to sing some good old John Wesley hymns. And worship Jesus. And now it stands abandoned. Look at the picture of the outside. In downtown Gary, Indiana, that's that church, abandoned. The lampstand has been removed. Now listen to me, people. At some point, the leadership of this church got together because the church was booming. If you can build that building in downtown Gary, Indiana, then church is doing, the ABCs are booming. The attendance is great. The giving's awesome. And hey, we're out of building. We need some more building. And somebody got together and put that sketch, a sketch of that building on some kind of poster and show the congregation and said this is what we got to get behind and they built that thing and then people gathered at some point they had to worship jesus in that place but if you don't love jesus that's what happens and i don't know who went first and let me just tell you this individually you can do everything right you can believe right and you can go on mission trips and you can serve and you can do all that. You can work hard and you can believe right. And if you don't love Jesus first, that's you. You're just an empty shell. Beautiful on the outside or one day was beautiful on the outside and empty, no life on the inside. Listen to me. I, I mean, I, I would much rather be in a renovated Walmart with life on the inside where a bunch of people get together and love Jesus and have the best facility in the entire world. Amen. You know what the most important thing a church can do? The most important thing a church can do is love Jesus. The most important thing a church can do is love Jesus. Should we serve the poor? Yes. But you got to love Jesus. And because you love Jesus, you serve the poor. Should we go on mission trips? Yes. But it's because you love Jesus. You love Jesus first. And because you love him, then you do what he's commanded and you go. The most important thing we can do is not be about programs and not be about buildings and offerings and all of that. But the most important thing that we can do is that we can love Jesus. And so as a pastor of this thing, what I'm trying to do, all of us, staff, elders, deacons, everybody that has anything to do with this church and leadership, what we're trying to do is create environments where, where they stir your affections for him. 
Just like you need to keep dating your wife to keep that thing stirred up so you keep pursuing her. We, we want to extol the name of Jesus and get together in, in biblical fellowship and have an have a atmosphere of transparency where you can be vulnerable to confess and to repent. And we want to give sacrificially and we want to be rooted in the word. Why? Just to help us love Jesus. Because if not, if not, we'll be just like the church at Ephesus. Even though this year has been a banner year, unbelievable year, exceedingly more than I could ever hope or imagine. But if you don't love Jesus, then it don't really matter. Look what, I'm going to read a bunch of Bible verses as we, as we close. In John eight forty two, the Bible says, Jesus said to them, if, if God were your father, you would love me. He's talking to religious people. You say you believe in God, but you don't love Jesus? Well, God, Jesus says, if you, really, if you really believe in God, then you would love Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, 12 to 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay his life down for his friends. Listen to this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. Jesus is saying, it's not about activity. It's not even about just having your doctrine correct. It's about being friends with Jesus. It's about loving Jesus first. It's the most important thing you could do individually. It's the most important thing we could do as a church. If we get everything else right, but we don't love Jesus, then we didn't get anything right. Now, who wrote that? John. Where was John an elder? The church at Ephesus. What did Ephesus do? Abandon their first love. You think the elder might have been warning his church about something? The word love is, is recorded in John's writings more than anywhere else. He's known as the disciple that Jesus loved. I mean, he called himself that, but still, he, that's what he's known as. All he wanted to talk about was love. Why? Because somehow he saw that his church was abandoning its first love and then It's over. What about you? Have you abandoned your first love? Maybe maybe you've known Jesus, but if you just look at it, it's just kind of a casual religious obligation. Don't be an empty shell of what Christ has created you to be. And so what do you do? You repent and you do the things you did at first. You extol his name. You get in fellowship. You just do those things that stir your affection for him. You do those things that stir your affection for him. And the way we're going to close the service... We're going to close the service by celebrating Holy Communion together. Now, here's why. Because when we celebrate communion, this is how we love Jesus. The ushers are going to pass out the elements right now, and we're all going to take it together. So once you get the elements, just hang on for a second, okay? But this is how we love Jesus. Now, this is important. I'm not saying this is how we show Jesus that we love him. What I mean is when we celebrate communion, what we're celebrating is this is how we are able to love Jesus. Because he laid down his life for us. That God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And so on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. Now listen, folks, you realize that these disciples had done the Passover meal every year of their life. And there were certain words that the rabbi was supposed to say. And, And Jesus, the son of God, didn't say the right words. And he holds up the bread. And he's supposed to talk about the children of Israel were in a hurry to leave. And so they couldn't let the bread rise and all that stuff. And he changes all the words and he says, this is my body 
broken for you. Can I explain something else? John chapter 13, when they're doing this, the disciples didn't even know what he was talking about. They didn't understand it. They didn't know what he meant. They didn't know what he meant until he went to the cross and went, oh, oh, you're the suffering servant. So when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, what he's talking about is that he is the Lamb of God. He's come to take away the sin of all mankind, that the old sacrificial system is done because the great highest priest, once and for all, has been has cleansed our sin. And he says, this is my body. He's talking about the atoning, substitutionary death that he died on the cross. And then he, he took the wine. And you have no idea how scandalous the words that he used here are. He says, and this is my blood. poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is a new covenant. Or a new testament. Where testament and covenant mean the same thing. The old covenant was a covenant of law. Here are the Ten Commandments. You obey them or else. The new covenant, the new testament, is a testament or a covenant of grace. Which says, you couldn't obey the Ten Commandments, could you? I know. They were there to reveal that you needed a Savior. Not to just try to be better. And so Jesus says, I have poured out my blood for you. To purchase for you a new covenant, a new testament of grace. That the way you're made right before God is not obedience to the law. But is surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, if you'll take your elements. That's why the Bible says that Jesus said on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He held up the body or the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it. Do so in remembrance of me. What you're remembering is the cross. I know you weren't there, but you're remembering the cross. You're remembering this is how we love God. This is how we are able to love God. That God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were yet still sinners, that Christ died for us. That John says that we love because he first loved us. So as often as you eat of this body, you do so in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup of the new covenant, the new testament. And the reason we have a New Testament, a new covenant, is because the fake you is doing just fine, but the real you needs a Savior. Not to just try harder, but needs a Savior. And he holds up the cup and he says, this is my blood, the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And as often as you drink this, you do so in remembrance of me. Now would you please stand and pray with me. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much that you have made a way. God, thank you that you can be our first love because you first loved us. God, thank you that you can be our first love because you first loved us. Lord, I pray that we would rightly respond to your love. Lord, I pray for any person in here that has been prone to wonder. Lord, they feel it. They're prone to leave you. God, I pray that we would offer you our hearts, we would surrender to you, and you would take and seal our hearts, and you would seal it for your courts above. And God, may we just respond to you because you love us so much. Lord, may that love just continue to be messy. It's not clean, it's not orderly, it doesn't fit into categories, but it is just, it's just messy. And God, we, we love you. 
We claim it as a church. May this be always a church known as a church that just loves Jesus. Just loves Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we respond to the gospel. God initiates, we respond. We just responded by celebrating communion together. We also respond at this church by coming to the altar and just laying down whatever those things are that are drawing you away from your first love. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes all the way around the room or the giving kiosk back there. And we respond to God by singing out to Him. And we can sing to Him that we love Him because He first loved us. Let us respond.